This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Believe it or not, the High Line, a former railroad track turned popular New York City park, and a new meditation studio have a closer relationship than you might think. Coming up, you'll discover how Rick Little went from a principal team member creating one of the most visited cultural destinations to bringing the extraordinary health and stress management benefits of Vedic meditation to as many people as possible. Plus, how you can and why you should integrate this incredible practice into your busy life. Welcome to the All Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. Rick, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So how I met you, and I don't think I've actually personally met you, but we corresponded by mm-hmm. email many, many years ago when I was working uh, at a firm and, and you were at Friends of the Highline. Yep. And so it's been many years. So it's just wonderful to now see that you are a Vedic meditation teacher. And I'm mm. curious to start off with how did that journey happen? Sure, sure. Well, it's very much related to my time at the Highline. And actually, I was first introduced to Vedic meditation through Robert Hammond, who is the executive director at Friends of the Highline and who was my boss for about 12 or 13 years. He learned this practice, I'm not exactly sure I want to say, it was probably at least 10 years ago at this point. And when he first learned the practice, he would come into the office and meditate in the office. And at that point, our offices were very small and there were no private spaces in the office. So he would come into the office and do his afternoon meditation in the supply closet. So he would sit in the supply <laughs> closet, put a sticky note on the door that says, don't, don't disturb me for the next 20 minutes or so because I'll be meditating. And so that was my first introduction to Vedic meditation. And he meditated in the office that way for two or three years and then at some point made it possible for anybody on staff at the Highline who wanted to learn to meditate to do so that and the Highline would help subsidize a portion of the course fee for anyone on staff who wanted to learn which was a really that's very incredible generous. opportunity yes yeah. yes very generous and progressive and so at that point I would say seven or eight of us learned to meditate and then over the subsequent three or four years, there were a good number of, of Highline staff who learned to meditate. And so that's when I f- was first introduced to the practice. And this was about about seven years ago, um, probably right about this time of year, about seven years ago. So I'm right around my seven-year anniversary of having started this meditation practice. What was going on to actually motivate you to even say, yes, I want to take this course? Mm-hmm. Because it was what was your life like was it stressful was it or were you just curious and and wanted to learn I want to say that my it was my curiosity mostly and my natural interest and 
and inclination and desire to learn more about meditation and Eastern philosophies and spiritual practices. I had never meditated before, but I was someone who at that point was doing a lot of yoga and you know, four or five times a week. I had recently, or just prior to learning to meditate, I had also gone through a yoga teacher training program. So I was very interested in Eastern modalities and yogic practices, not just physical asana practices, but also the, the actual actual yoga practices, uh, which are practices that are around the unification of the individual self with the universal self. And so I was curious about meditation. I had never meditated before other than having gone to some yoga classes where at the end of the class, the teacher would say something like, all right, now everyone sit and close your eyes and we'll meditate together for 10 minutes without providing any actual instruction in how to meditate. And so I would sit there with my eyes closed and think that I was trying somehow to stop my mind from thinking because that was my understanding of what meditation was in the absence of any formal training or instruction in any particular practice. So I was already curious and Robert, what I had seen in Robert also was he is someone who is an incredibly creative and dynamic person naturally and has always had always been a, very much a seeker in his life. And I, having worked closely with him for a number of years, I observed him trying out a number of different self-help opportunities. That's not the right word. Uh, a number of different techniques and practices that were all about improving himself. And he he's also someone who has a very short attention span. And so I would observe him trying out a new practice and sticking with it for a couple of months. And then something else would come along and he would try that out or he would hear about a different workshop and he would go do that. And, and, and he was very much on the move, moving from practice to practice to practice. And then I, what I observed in him is that as soon as he learned Vedic meditation, he stopped seeking other practices he and, and he stuck with this one. And this was really remarkable having seen him exhibit some ADD around his own journey and then observing him finally settle on something that was was working for him and was he was sustaining and sustainable for him. And so I was intrigued by this and said, let me let me give this a shot and see see what this is all about. Before we go into what Vedic meditation is specifically, I'm fascinated by the, the the kind of culture you've already talked about where this is this is work, right? It's like going to an office. I mean, th this is unique because this was when the Highline was first being created, right? Like Robert yeah. is a co-founder and this was when idea and I, probably a very lofty idea started mm -hmm. becoming reality and and what even that entails for someone to create a vision out of literally, I mean, not even nothing, but, you know, abandoned railroad tracks, right? Yeah. So, so that the culture of, of creativity and vision melded with a boss who actually talks about 
spirituality or like modalities with his staff that、mm. I find really unique.、Yeah. So can you talk about what what that was like? Maybe compared to some other experiences, like work experiences you've had. Sure. The thing about Robert is he never spoke about his meditation practice from a spiritual perspective, and actually, even to this day, when you hear him talk about it, he doesn't really talk about it as a spiritual practice that frequently. At least that hasn't been my observation with him. Although he, I know he understands it to be very much a spiritual practice, and when it was presented to me and to the rest of the staff as an opportunity. He was very much his perspective or his positioning of it was here's something that I do that I find to be helpful, and I'd like to be able to share that with you. And I understand that there are also a whole host of related benefits that employers can take advantage of when their employees are meditating in terms of employee engagement and employee creativity and retention and. All of the things that employers want out of an employee, we want employees. Employers want employees to be engaged and well rested and creative and happy at work. And he understood that meditation was one one way in which that could be provided to his staff. And so it, it didn't. He did not come to. It was not presented to the staff as a spiritual practice in that sense. And and actually. When we talk about Vedic meditation, the spiritual practice, the spiritual components of the practice, tend to not be what we lead with. We tend to open with the conversation with a focus on the practice around stress management or creativity, or some of the more、hmm, maybe even left-brained. Reasons that people want to learn to meditate, just to start to feel better, to feel more rested, to feel more creative, to have more access to energy and adaptability. There is unquestionably a very important spiritual underpinning to the practice, and the practice and the tradition of the practice has been around for thousands and thousands of years, and has as one of its benefits. The an increased understanding of the individual's relationship with spirit, and so, but I think because we tend we tend in 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 our current society to be I think a bit skeptical of spiritual practices, especially when they're presented in the workplace, which is supposed to be a place that where spirit doesn't really isn't really a primary. Area of focus, at least not in today's day and age. So we tend to open the conversation and and introduce people to meditation by talking about some of the very practical, real world benefits and experiences that people can have as a result of meditation. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting because、um, I've I've. Done transcendental meditation,、mm-hmm. which,、um, which I I believe is somewhat similar, but I you know you can definitely tell me more, and it it is, it is a very 
powerful tool mm-hmm. to to do all of those things you mentioned, kind of the, the stress management, engagement, and just, you know, um, really awareness and presence. And it's just, it's fascinating to me just seeing the the progression of more and more of these different modalities being integrated into the workplace. Mm. And how they do it is, you know, very much from this left brain, you know, rational productivity kind of point of view. But if you were to look at it, you know, 20 years ago, you would probably not find a meditation or a yoga uh, session in the office, like in the conference room. And so that the fact that, that you even had the opportunity at the High Line is, is yeah. really fascinating. And there definitely was a very strong culture around meditation. I haven't been there for a few years at the High Line, but um, at the time that I left, there was a very strong culture around meditation in that there were so many people who had learned this practice that there were frequently group meditations happening in the office on a daily basis. You get six or seven or 10 of our staff in a conference room meditating in the middle of the afternoon, which is a really fantastic environment and something that you think of, you observe or hear happening at large places like Google, but you don't really necessarily hear about happening at smaller nonprofit organizations. So I think you're right there. The, the, the culture is definitely shifting. And I think that that's one of the reasons that this practice was, I think that that's one of the reasons that this practice became such an integrated part of my life is that I had such a strong professional support system, a strong support system in my professional life, in addition to in my personal life that really helped me to establish a consistent practice. So that's beautiful. It, 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 to me, it's a luxury. Yeah. That, that, that I, I wish I had when, yeah. when I was going through this journey. Definitely. We'll be right back. Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser. To receive a 25% discount on headphones, microphones, and other high-end audio products, visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN at checkout. That's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N. Rick, we talked about your kind of journey so far in, in even being exposed to what Vedic meditation is. Can you walk us through what it is for sure. people who may not, uh, may not be familiar with meditation or even this particular uh, type of meditation? Sure, sure. So Vedic meditation comes from the Veda. And the Veda is the term that we use for the umbrella body of knowledge from India, out of which we get this meditation practice. But also yoga comes out of the Veda, Ayurvedic medicine, which is growing in popularity and comes out of this body of knowledge. And 
basically all Eastern philosophy and spirituality can trace its roots back to this one body of knowledge that is somewhere on the order of five to 10,000 years old. There's definitely some disagreement in the scholarly community about just how old it is. It was an oral tradition for thousands of years and then started being written down. And it's really a body of knowledge that is all about how to live one's life in alignment with nature, with the universe, with a higher purpose. The practice itself is practiced sitting comfortably with your eyes closed and gently thinking a sound, a mantra to yourself. And the mantras that we use in this practice don't have any definition or meaning or translation. They're not in any language. They're a, a type of mantra known as a bija mantra, B-I-J-A, which is a Sanskrit word that means seed. And these seed mantras don't, because they don't have any intended meaning or definition or translation, they work in a very particular way. As, the, as you're sitting thinking the mantra silently to yourself, because of the mechanics of the mantra, as you think it, it naturally and spontaneously gets subtler and quieter and fainter in the mind. And the mantras are chosen on an individual basis to be the mantra that is the most resonant for any particular person. And so the mind of the meditator finds the mantra very attractive. The mind is always scanning about looking for things that it finds attractive and then effortlessly moving towards those things. And because the mind finds the mantra attractive, as the mantra gets subtler and quieter and fainter, the mantra, the, excuse me, the mind follows the mantra down into very subtle and quiet and faint levels of thinking. And then the mantra does its final trick, which is that it gets so subtle and quiet and faint that it disappears completely. And it leaves the mind for a while in a place where it's not thinking the mantra, but it's not thinking any other thoughts. And then the mind typically gets pulled out of this place pretty quickly and gets caught up in thoughts again. And so then we teach students how to effortlessly return to the mantra and pick it up again and begin the process of allowing it to get subtler and quieter and fainter. And as the mind settles down into these very subtle levels of thought, subtle levels of thinking, when we're meditating in this in this way, in this practice, the body is resting anywhere from two to five times more deeply than at any point during the night. And it's this deep and profound rest that allows the body to begin to purify itself and process through historical stresses and stress triggers and fatigue that we all have stored in the body. All of the gunk that's accumulated in the physiology up until this point begins to get processed out during meditation. And so we come out of meditation feeling much more grounded and well-rested and clear-headed and ready to engage with the rest of our day. But there's a cumulative effect as well, that over the course of time, as the body gets purified and these historical stresses and stress triggers and fatigue get purified out of the physiology, we have greater and greater access to that place within us, which is the source of all of our creativity and adaptability and energy and inspiration, that level of being, that place that we are underneath all of our thinking, that place that is the source of all of our thoughts, but is also the source of all of our creativity and happiness and fulfillment and energy. 
because it's practiced sitting easily and comfortably with the eyes closed, there are very few cultural barriers to this practice. If someone is to witness someone meditating in this way, it just looks like someone is sitting with their eyes closed. We don't have to sit in full lotus. You don't have to burn incense or wear any particular kind of outfit or garments. It can be practiced literally anywhere that you can sit with the eyes closed. So people meditate on the subway, in taxi cabs, Starbucks, coffee shops, anywhere that you can sit with the eyes closed safely and comfortably for about 20 minutes, you can meditate. And this is one of the things that makes this practice so useful and practical for people living in New York City, but also anywhere in the world. The early masters of this tradition were householders. They were people like you and me who have relationships and jobs and commitments and family. They And so this practice developed around that lifestyle and in support of that lifestyle. And so it, it is very much a householder's practice rather than some other meditation traditions that come out of more austere or monastic traditions, environments in which people can sit in an ashram or a cave or a monastery and remove themselves from society. And the, the practices that come out of those traditions are built around and in support of that kind of a lifestyle. And this practice is built around and in support of a lifestyle that's all about integrating with society and making sure that the practitioner is contributing to society in as creative and beneficial and positive way as possible. Uh, one quick question, because I want to talk about a little bit of my own personal experience doing... Um, transcendental meditation. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between TM and Vedic meditation? Great question. If there is one. Yeah, we get this a lot. So they come out of the same lineage. And my, so I teach Vedic meditation and I was taught to teach Vedic meditation by a man named Tom Knowles, who continues to teach Vedic meditation. And Tom was trained as a teacher of Transcendental Meditation by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who is the person who brought this technique to the West. And he taught TM for over 25 years with organizations affiliated with Maharishi. And since the late 90s, I think it was 1997 or so, he, he has continued to teach meditation as he learned it from Maharishi and has done so independently and separately from the TM organizations. And I'm not affiliated with the TM organizations or their current services or programs. Does that mean that my experience uh, doing TM, when I share it with you, like you'll, mm. you'll be able to understand or like you, you have a frame of reference. Exactly. For... Yes. They do come out of the same lineage and the, experiences that you have practicing TM can be can are are relevant in a conversation about Vedic meditation. So you you talked about the integration of meditation into everyday life mm -hmm. and and when I when I did TM I did it with my husband in part because there was a couples discount uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, rational minds yeah. think okay might as well um and in part because we from a relationship standpoint wanted to actually meditate together at least we saw um 
and there may be scientific studies behind this as well, but that there's sort of more power behind multiple people, more mm. than one person meditating um, at, at one time. Yeah. And, and I found it very hard to, to integrate. Mm -hmm. And it may just be my, my own, you know, lack of morning <laughs> status to wake up in the morning and mm -hmm. meditate first thing. Um, for some reason I couldn't do that, but I did manage for a good number of years to meditate when I'm on the subway. Mm -hmm. And so that's really fascinating because when you're on, I had a very, uh, maybe an hour long commute. And so when I, um, found a seat, I normally, I would sleep anyway, but mm -hmm. in this case, I would meditate. And there was, uh, there were many different times where I, you know, I would say the mantra in my head and, and my, my head I knew would fall over mm -hmm. as if, you know, when you're asleep on the subway and your head just kind of moves around and you hope you don't bang into the, your neighbor next to you. Right. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in that mode. Like my thought was. I'm, I'm in some other consciousness or, or state, whatever you might call it. And I could still hear everything that was going on around me. I could hear the announcements that the conductor was making. I heard conversations around me. I didn't, you know, catch details, but mm -hmm. I still received input. And yet I felt like I was swimming in nothingness, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. It, it was almost yeah. like this lightness of being where I was in... I was here, but I wasn't quite here at the same time. And it was very beautiful feeling. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about this particular form of meditation compared to others, whether it's like, you know, mindfulness or guided meditation or visualizations was that time just passed by and it just flew by. There was no concept of time. So yeah. I'm curious what, what was going on yeah. during that <laughs> time? Because I know this doesn't, this may or may not happen for everyone. I know my husband doesn't necessarily get this experience or, you know, um, or, or find this experience familiar to his own yeah. personal Great. experience. So there's a lot there to talk about. Um, so the state that we enter into when we meditate in this way is a state of consciousness that is a, a fourth state of consciousness. So we're most familiar up until learning to meditate with three primary states of consciousness, wake, wakingness, three primary states of consciousness, wakefulness, sleeping, and dreaming. When we meditate, we're actually entering into a fourth state of consciousness. Each of these other three states of consciousness has its own unique brainwave patterns and physiological characteristics, as does this fourth state of consciousness. And so if someone puts an EEG cap on you and is in the other room looking at the printout of what the pens are doing on the paper, they can look, they can understand, they can know just by looking at what the pens on the paper are doing, whether you're awake, whether you're asleep, whether you're dreaming, or whether you're in this fourth state of consciousness, which is also referred to as a wakeful hypometabolic state in that you are wakeful. If someone were to, you, you hear the noises of the subway around you, if someone were to walk up to you while you're meditating and snap his fingers, you would be aware of that noise. And yet the body's metabolism has dropped to a very deep and profound level. 
And so we can have this experience. This is this, this deep rest, this experience of deep rest that I was talking about earlier. And it can feel like we do lose track of time. We can lose very quickly, lose a sense of where the body is in time and in space. And meditating on the subway is a really great example of this. And it's something that I encourage my students to do to begin to move away from any idea that meditation is something that can only happen under a very particular set of circumstances or under environments under which we have a lot of control. It's, you know, we've, it's, it seems obvious that we can meditate at home in our bedrooms with the shades drawn and look a candle burning, but this doesn't need to be the environment that's created in order to meditate. We can meditate in environments which at first thought might seem to be less than ideal meditation environments. My favorite meditation war story that comes out of my own personal experience is maybe five or six years ago, I was in Las Vegas with some friends having a weekend and it was four in the afternoon and I hadn't done my afternoon meditation and there was nowhere to meditate and we were at a casino. And so I grabbed a chair and pulled it over to a corner of the casino and sat there and closed my eyes and meditated for 20 minutes and was aware during that meditation of the jackpots going off and the bells and the whistles and the people walking by and smoking and the music playing in the background, you know, to some certain degree, but was able, I was able to meditate. And so this is a pretty extreme example. And if I had had an opportunity to meditate in a less disruptive environment, I would have definitely taken that opportunity. But give, given that I would, didn't really have a choice in the matter, I made, I was able to meditate in that situation. And so if I am able to meditate in that situation, it's, it's, it is, it's, it, illustrates the point that we can meditate under pretty extreme conditions. And we live in a world where, especially in New York City, where it's a very noisy, high stimulus environment, chances are we're going to be in situations where we don't have as much control over our environments as we would like to. And so I always encourage my students pretty early on in their practice to get out into the world and meditate on a park bench, meditate on the subway. And you'll find that the first time you do it, it's not going to be your favorite meditation. But the second time you do it, the third time you do it, the 10th time you do it, it gets a little bit easier and more natural every single time. I also want to talk about the the thinking or the, your, your desire to learn to meditate with your husband alongside your husband. And this is something that we also encourage is, is learning to meditate with someone in, in your life who is a friend or, uh, with whom you're in a relationship in order to have that shared experience of learning to meditate together, which is always a nice thing for a relationship is to have a shared experience. But we also find that couples who learn to meditate together have not only a built-in accountability system, a, a meditation buddy with whom they can meditate on a regular basis, but it also relationship is one area in which we see some of the most immediate and primary benefits of meditation in that it tends to upgrade our relationships. We, t as meditators, 
we have an experience on a regular basis of getting into getting in touch with that place within each one of us where we are at our most fulfilled. And then that relationship begins to be an opportunity for us to share that fulfillment with someone else and share that fulfillment with the world and become a conduit for that fulfillment. And relationship is one of the primary areas in which we see this and where, where it's most obvious. And we see couples who come and learn to meditate together have an experience of the, an upgrade of their relationship through this enhancing their ability to bring fulfillment into the relationship. And there's a cultural construct that we have around relationships. And this is reflected in pop music all the time in that we are incomplete and that relationships exist to make us complete. When we learn to meditate, we get in touch with that part of us that is complete. We have that understanding that we are complete on an individual level and that we no longer need to seek to get something out of relationships and relationships become an opportunity for us to share and to give to relationships, relationships in which one or both of the parties is looking to get something out of it tend to not be the healthiest or longest lasting relationships. If you look at relationships where the participants in that relationship are all looking to contribute to the relationship, these are relationships that we look, we observe to be healthy, long lasting relationships in every, in every kind of relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or whether it's a work relationship. If you're, if what you're doing is bringing your fullest self to a relationship in the workplace, chances are that that relationship is going to be a happier and more successful work relationship. And so the same is true of work relationships, romantic relationships, even relationships with a cab driver or the person at the deli who's where you're getting your coffee. Um, I do feel that after the meditation session, I, f I feel whole and anything else that may have been weighing on my mind, whether it's work or relationship oriented, just doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a very powerful tool. Coming up next, you'll hear more of this story. We'll be right back. If you're a business decision maker, you should listen to this. The show you're listening to is produced by Mouth Media Network, a podcasting network focused on the business of lifestyle. Because of our team's background and deep connections with brands, influencers, and ecosystems, we offer a tremendous opportunity to bring your company's message and products in front of decision makers from several verticals, including fashion, beauty, travel, materials and textiles, health and fitness, and lifestyle. Reach out to the Mouth Media team now at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Let's explore how we can collaborate and make Mouth Media Network a meaningful resource to share your message and grow your business. Again, that's podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. 
you, you've kind of gone on a journey and now you're actually teaching uh, meditation after having taken your own class on it. What would be the most important thing that you learned, your, your biggest takeaway that you'd like to leave us? There are lots of ideas about what meditation is. And these are supported by social media and people, especially Instagram, I'd say, has been definitely a, a way in which people begin to form ideas about what meditation is. And I, before I learned this practice, I thought I knew what meditation was, even though I had never tried it before, had never had any formal training in it. And upon introduction to Vedic meditation, I all of a sudden had a whole new understanding of what meditation is and the importance of instruction in meditation, just like instruction in any other area of your life. If you want to learn a new skill, it's important to seek out a teacher and find someone who can teach you that skill. And meditation is just like that. It is a skill that is most effectively taught and learned on an individual basis. And how can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Great. Uh, the easiest way to get in touch with me is via my website, which is www.rlm.nyc. So that's rlm, like Rick Little Meditation, .nyc. I'm also excited to announce that I'm partnering with five other Vedic meditation teachers, and we'll be opening a Vedic meditation studio on Spring Street here in Manhattan that's called The Spring, and the URL for that is The Spring Meditation. So that'll be opening very soon, and we're excited to have a whole bunch of new students coming to the first brick-and-mortar Vedic meditation studio in New York City. Congratulations. Thank you. Rick, thank you so much for being on the show and for uh, reconnecting on this level to kind of show us what meditation is and what your journey has been. And I'm excited to hear more about this kind of new community space that you're creating. So congrats. Mm. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And for you, our listener, take a look at what kinds of meditation you would like to explore, whether you already whether you already have a practice and you're looking to integrate it into your life, explore, you know, meditating on the subway or meditating in the casino, as Rick said, wherever you are, look for that place where you can connect with your own self. And until next time, be on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.